up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This podcast and the one to follow are pure gems. You're going to hear from Dr. Mason McDowell, who in 2014 sold everything he, his wife, and his two young daughters owned and moved full-time to the heart of Africa, to the town of Bier, to the nation of Chad, to provide anesthesia services at a hospital with severe resource limitations. Dr. McDowell was a professor of mine and the assistant program director at Western Carolina University when he made the decision to move to Chad. I remember him preparing and talking about the why behind his decision, and watching that process unfold was incredibly powerful. We'll talk a little bit about that in this show. I just want to frame how massive of a change this was for Dr. McDowell and his family. They lived in a planned community of beautiful residential homes and businesses nestled in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. The community housed a satellite campus for WCU and our anesthesia program. Mason could walk to work from his home, step across the street to a number of stellar restaurants or high-end shops, or even stroll to the end of the block to the grand movie theater to watch a show with some fresh popcorn. He was well-respected in the local community and maintained an anesthesia practice at the local 800-bed trauma center with all the technology and resources you could imagine. And they decided to leave all of that and move full-time to Bier Chad. The hospital where Mason went to work didn't have a functional anesthesia machine. Mason flew to Europe to buy a drawlover vaporizer so that he could bring inhalational anesthesia to Bier. Before Mason and that machine showed up, the options were either ketamine or spinals. That's it. The stories Mason shares here on these two podcasts are remarkable, but they only scratch the surface of his time in Chad. I'll link to his blog at whyweshouldgo.blogspot.com in the show notes, where you can read about the day-to-day, night-to-night tales from providing anesthesia in general medical services in Chad. Those stories are heart-wrenching. There were innumerable times when Mason and his team had to make decisions based on the severe resource limitation that we simply would never have to make here in the United States. I'd like to share one of them with you now, before you hear from Mason, because this beautifully and tragically captures a glimpse of his time there. This was written by Mason McDowell. Four, three, two, one. 8th of December, Beer Chad. I was called out of our morning meeting at the hospital around 7.30 a.m. with a wave of a hand. I knew what it was even before I asked for confirmation. Baby, we. A mother had just delivered twins, but baby number two wasn't breathing. I gave oxygen, breathed for him with an ambu bag, and tried to keep him warm. Donna, the OBGYN, lifted her scrub shirt to press baby against her skin to warm him as I continued to hand ventilate. Eventually, he was breathing on his own and was sent to our NICU. That's the neonatal intensive care unit. Except in Chad, it means he is getting oxygen while he rests in a tiny cardboard box in our OR with two hot water bottles tucked beside him. Guess what? He's still alive tonight. Flash forward to around 8 p.m. when our volunteers arrived from the U.S. They were only there 10 minutes before an urgent phone call. Maternity. A mom turned quickly. Send Mason now. I threw on scrubs and my friend Sean, also an anesthetist, hurried along behind me. We arrived to find a seemingly dead-looking pregnant woman laying on the floor and frothing at the mouth. We moved her quickly down the sidewalk to the OR and began CPR. Chest compressions, oxygen, ventilation, IV epinephrine, nothing. 
Now that's a terrible situation, lifeless and pregnant. I told Danae, she's dead, dead. Get the baby out. I barely finished the sentence before Danae cut down and retrieved a baby girl. Good pulse, but not breathing. After an extended period of manual ventilation and stimulation, the baby perked up and breathed on her own. The unmistakable scent of Arabic perfume lingered in the air as it radiated from the cloth I used to wrap the baby in. The fabric had been part of her mother's clothing. Blood covered the OR table, floor, and the surgeon. We cleaned up the baby's mother and brought in the family for a final viewing. Tears and prayers filled the OR. The family left to find a truck to carry the body away, and I walked home alone under a brilliant night sky, still replaying the events of the day and looking for lessons to learn. I returned home to find suitcases filled with treasures from the U.S. Our friends brought items purchased or donated for us in our hospital. It was like an early Christmas. After 30 minutes of sorting goodies and eating junk food, another call came in. Stat C-section. Seriously? A very young mother with complicated labor was already in pre-op when I arrived. Unfortunately, the dead body from an hour ago was still in the OR, still waiting for family. And we had to find a way to move it out and bring in the new patient without making a big scene. If it wasn't so sad, it would have been comical. We pushed the dead woman into our tiny pre-op room after angling the new patient's stretcher in a way that she had to twist around to see the body. And that's exactly what she tried to do. We built a human wall with the four of us as we shuffled along, pulling the new patient past the body, just two feet away. Now in the OR, IV fluid, monitors, spinal anesthetic administered easily, cut down, and baby retrieved in textbook fashion. Except, silent baby. Floppy baby. Apneic baby. After stimulating, warming, and ventilating with oxygen, nothing. Pulse rate 160, perfect, but he's not breathing. Ventilate, stimulate, spank, again and again. The sound of surgery continued behind me. And Dilby attended to the mother as I worked on the baby boy. After maybe 40 minutes, that baby boy had a perfect heart rate, perfect color, perfect body temperature. But he wouldn't breathe. Not even a sputter. I told Danae I was stopping. We have no ventilator here and no other option. Chad is harsh. Only the strongest survive. I kept my hand draped over his chest and I stroked his hair as I felt the warmth of his body slip away while I whispered words of prayer. I think it took about 10 minutes to see his heart rate slow down and then finally stop. I stayed with him and I finally glanced over my shoulder at his young mama. She knew. She saw my eyes and heard the silence. It took 10 minutes to watch a baby die once I quit breathing for him. How long will it take to forget this day? Four resuscitations, three babies in peril, two babies beat the odds, one husband, father, friend, who is beyond thankful for faith and daily blessings. Life is good even when it's hard. Mason. Oh, oh, oh. oh I can't read that without tearing up. It's unbelievable. Um, those are the kinds of stories that I was reading after Mason left Asheville, North Carolina, the comforts of the United States, and moved to Bier through his blog, again, at whyweshouldgo.blogspot.com. It's linked in the show notes. So you can find that and so many other stories in Mason's writing. Mason and his family moved to Chad with the intention of living there for years. 
Unfortunately, a couple of years into their new journey, the political and security situation deteriorated rapidly in Chad, and the U.S. State Department issued a warning that all U.S. citizens should evacuate immediately. Mason talks about this decision to leave with a day's notice and the culture shock he and his family experienced upon their return to the U.S. Not long after that, in May of 2017, I caught up with him to record these conversations. I apologize up front about the audio. At the time, I was using a desktop microphone that captured everything in the room, and the acoustics were just not great. But I guess these shows are about doing anesthesia in not great environments. So if you've made it this far, I bet you're going to cope just fine with the audio. In this first episode, you'll hear Mason talk about he and his family's decision to go, what it was like, what they did there, and why they had to leave. In the next episode, Mason shares advice for other anesthesia providers who are interested in short or long-term mission work. And with that, let's get to the show. Dr. Mendel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. (laughs) Uh, To start, will you give us just a brief review of your time providing anesthesia overseas? Where have you gone and for how long? Sure, thanks. Um, well, as you mentioned, we did we we packed up and sold everything and decided to to try to serve in Chad, Africa, and really that came about from one of my graduate students. Um, his wife went to medical school with some physicians that were currently serving in Chad. They were uh, she's an OBGYN and he's an emergency room physician, and they were looking to recruit another physician to join them to help out. And they were really overworked in a in a kind of a desperate situation in a in a low income country in a developing country, Chad. So I agreed to take Brad, my student, uh, with me, and so we checked things out for him, and one thing led to another, and it turned out that, that uh, he and his wife did not go to Chad, but I came home and was fairly certain that this was a place that I could really make a contribution, and so I talked with my wife, and one thing led to another, and, and we did. We we made a big change and sort of dropped out of you know the, the pinnacle of of my career. I feel like I, everything was going exactly right as anybody would want to script it. And we decided to turn it all upside down on its head and, um, and, and try to go somewhere that, that really was desperate. And so that was, that was Chad Africa. And if you're like me, you probably don't know where Chad is. I had to look it up, I swear, before I went the first time. But it was kind of the middle of the middle of the continent. You know, if you draw a line north-south and east-west, it's just about in the middle, maybe slightly north of the middle. So we were there, turned out to be just over 18 months, I guess. I'm trying to remember exactly, but we got a a notification one morning from the State Department that said, evacuate as soon as feasible. And we got really no other information than that. So we tried contacting the embassy and reached out to a bunch of people. And all we heard was rumor and innuendo, but the entire team pulled out. So we were done. We, we We had a nonprofit and we had to sort of put things in order with people that were in key positions and we closed up shop and everybody left the country in in about two days. Wow. So that was really tough for us to sort of recollect things. Um, But while I was there, uh, it was an incredible experience to do anesthesia and much, much more. And uh, since returning, you know, from Chad, re-engaging in American life and being an anesthetist again, um, it's still great. It's a wonderful profession, but I was very excited to have opportunities to continue to travel. It seems like maybe I'm on a list now, and I don't know, <laughs> where I get contacted and say, hey, can you come here and help us out? And that's yeah. uh, something I hope to keep this balance of working in America and in working internationally. 
So where else have you been since returning to, from Chad? Sure. Um, most recently, well, I guess I got a request to go to Sierra Leone. And one of the surgeons that I knew at another hospital in Chad, he, uh, he evacuated at the same time that we did. And he ended up landing in Sierra Leone after some time. And he wanted some help um, for his anesthesia department. They were, again, a very sort of desperate hospital doing great work, but a lot of effort still needs to be put into making it a really safe and growing place for, for healthcare. So I agreed to go there, and then just literally after buying my plane ticket, I got another pseudo-random email from the organization that I was originally with in Chad, and they said, hey, we know about you, and um, a CEO of a hospital in Nepal is asking if somebody could come and provide anesthesia coverage while their anesthesiologist goes on vacation. Yeah. Would you be willing and able? And so after a few email exchanges, I was able to work it out with my job. It wasn't that easy. I had already committed to Sierra Leone, but um, that I would be able to go to Nepal for two weeks. Wow. So two weeks in Nepal and then home for a week and then Sierra Leone for two weeks. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they were that. They were very close together, which was a little tough for the family and trying to juggle that with my work, you know, so they wouldn't fire me. Right. (laughs) And they were very gracious to give me the time, I should add. That's great. Let's talk more about Chad and that initial decision to leave, mm-hmm. as you said, at the pinnacle of your career. I mean, you had a wife and two daughters. You were the assistant director of a nursing anesthesia school. You lived within walking distance <laughs> of, of the school. You had a great clinical practice um, locally in Western North Carolina. Talk to us a little bit more about how you go from being a full-time practicing CRNA, uh, living the dream, so to say, in mm-hmm. making that shift to say... We're going to sell our house. We're going to learn French. Uh, I'm going to pack up my family. Because you didn't go there necessarily with an endpoint in mind. I mean, you had vague, like maybe when the girls are ready for high school, right. I remember you saying. But um, how did you make that shift as personally and also as a family? Sure. Um, I don't, I honestly, I'm not exactly sure when it happened. But, um, you know, being in a place where the experience is like nothing I had seen before, and for example, in America, you know, I was I was running an anesthesia program or as an assistant director for it, and I had a great clinical practice, but really I was one of many people that could do my job. And as much as I'd like to believe I'm special, there's somebody else capable. You know, we have a great infrastructure in the United States, and I was in a place in Chad after having been invited to go for a short period of time, and there there really wasn't that that person. There wasn't somebody you know, waiting to fill in and to educate and to provide safe care. Um, so I knew professionally that it was something I wanted to do. And for me, you know, it was also a, a faith opportunity. Uh, it just felt like the right calling for me in my life. And, and I'm pretty fortunate, I have to say, that my wife agreed with that. Uh, I thought it would be a big hard sell. But she was in agreement um, that, you know, we would at least give it a try. I was a little more optimistic thinking this could be many, many years, five years or whatever. And for her, the practicalities of being a mom of young children, she was willing to go and then it would be always, well, we'll just kind of be year to year and figure things out. But we did prepare in a way that we were set up to go for a long period of time. We sold our house and cars and most of our belongings. So we'd have uh, finances not being a problem. And then the other issue you mentioned was the language. We were going to a country that the two formal languages were Arabic and French. So if you could if you could speak one of those, you'd be pretty good. So we spent, after coming home from that short-term visit the first time, 
uh, I future quit. I came home and told my hospital and, and the university, one year from now, I'm quitting. So I gave everybody plenty of time, you know, to find a replacement. Not right. that it's that hard, but they did find somebody to replace me. They got great, great people. Um, but that gave us time to learn language and to downsize and to right. sort of prepare mentally to go. So you, so you, knew, you made the commitment a year out that you were going to do this. Yeah, yeah. It was just over a year. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the clinical setting, the kinds of cases that, you know, what, what did you prepare for? What did you know that you were going to get into? And then in a minute, we'll talk about what it was actually like on the ground, what you sure. actually got into. Well, the, the great part was I had an opportunity with a short-term visit to go really as an observer and to see what things looked like. And uh, it was shocking. You know, they were in an operating room doing big surgeries, thyroid surgeries, open laparotomies, all kinds of things. Um, with pretty minimal anesthesia. And, and it's, by the way, the way they do it in a lot of developing countries. So intravenous, you know, just IV ketamine was, was the sort of the mainstay for general anesthesia or spinal. If they could do a spinal anesthetic for the type of surgery, they would. Um, that was pretty different from the way we do things in America where, yes, we have spinal anesthesia, but we also have, you know, intubation and mechanical ventilation and inhale, inhaled anesthetics. None of that stuff was there. So after having seen the way they did anesthesia, you know, and I'd been a guy doing anesthesia for quite a number of years, but I had a lot to learn about doing anesthesia that way, you know, in a maybe less less safe or less sophisticated kind of way. Mm -hmm. So I came home and I, I looked around and I found a course that was actually being taught in Seattle. And uh, it's a great, it was I'm trying to remember the title of the course, but it was like Global anesthesia or anesthesia for global outreach. That might have right. been it. It was like through University of San Francisco or I'll have to look that up. But it was a it was a really good course and it was the most expensive course I'd ever attended. But there were very few attendees and a lot of people who had expertise who had spent time in the field in, uh, in war situations or in really low income countries doing not sophisticated anesthesia, but in great ways of improvising and using um, ketamine and using these very simple anesthesia machines. Yeah. So I learned how to do anesthesia better for developing countries. Actually, I think it made me a better anesthetist even today by all the things that I sort of learned to do and broaden my scope there. So one of the things I needed to do was to fly to London. I raised funds from my CRNA community and I, I bought a draw over vaporizer that's sold through Diametica. I'm not affiliated with them, but really they do have some great products for for um, developing countries. So I bought essentially a hard case briefcase that had a vaporizer in it that could, you could put halothane or isoflurane in it, either yeah. one. I chose halothane because I could do inhalation induction for kids that way. And um, so I, I brought inhalation anesthesia to a place that had never existed before. Wow. Uh, and that was a pretty big deal. Uh, and it made me feel a lot more comfortable because there were some scary surgeries we were doing that I thought they'd be safer and better uh, if the patient was actually breathing inhaled anesthetics. Yeah. But then the next steps were teaching other people to do those. And uh, we didn't have things like an entitled CO2 monitor or a train of four nerve stimulator or reversal agents, things like that. So I had to sort of modify the way I thought anesthesia should be given hmm. and even train the surgeons, you know, like it'll be inhalation anesthesia. The patient will breathe spontaneously the whole time. So for our open laparotomy, how many times do you do that with a patient not paralyzed? Right. And we did it always in Chad with them breathing spontaneously because figured their body is smarter than I am and they could regulate their CO2 in ways that I could not just guess what their minute ventilation should be. 
Because you don't have... We didn't have the monitoring equipment. That would be just a routine part of our lives in America. Um, Yeah. So you you get to Chad. Paint the picture for us a little bit more. So where were you living? Where was the hospital? What other kinds of staff were involved? Mm -hmm. Um, How many operating rooms? Walk through like the... The pre-op, <laughs> intra-op, post-op, because sure. I know some of those things were, were lacking of not non-existent. Yeah, and, and honestly, they some things just never developed much more than they were the day I arrived, I have to admit. You know, I went there with the intention to educate and to do, you know, and I was on call 24-7, so I was always on call. I lived on the hospital compound, and, and so I was always available. Um but the country is is hot. It's you know sub-Saharan, but about half the country is in the desert, and the other half sort of progresses into a, sort of a pseudo-tropical looking environment. Lots of big mango trees, really green in the rainy season, which is about four months of the year, and the rest of the year it does not rain a drop, and it is very dry and very wow. hot. Public transportation is dangerous. Um, there are essentially two paved roads in the country: one that goes north-south, and one that goes east-west. So most of our time, we never saw pavement. It was always in mud or dirt. You were in a village. In a village, yeah. Very rural, in the middle of nowhere. How but big we was were, the village? They claim it was about 80,000 people, which is hard to envision because it was pretty sparsely populated. But yeah. each little mud brick hut might have 10 or 12 people affiliated wow. with it. So the it's kind of deceptive how many people really were there. And there were some government hospitals somewhat close to us, but... The population seemed to know that it was a, a good hospital. They had a good reputation. And, um, and and maybe things got even safer regarding surgery because they had some better anesthesia options um, with some of the technology and equipment that I was able to bring in. Yeah. So what else, what else did you get involved in beyond mm-hmm. anesthesia? Um, so it so happens that I have a background in pediatrics, and uh, I'm really thankful for that. They were... There arose a need that I was more than happy to fill in, and it, I essentially became their pediatrician. You know, I am a nurse anesthetist, so I'm not a physician, but I know a bit about children, and I felt comfortable with well children and, and fairly sick kids. I used to be a PALS instructor, and I was a pediatric nurse even once upon a time. So I took on that role and, and learned what I needed to learn sort of along the way, and I read a lot, and I reached out to a lot of people to get good protocols and how does the WHO recommend handling this or that? And I read a lot about tropical disease. And honestly, it became equally or maybe even slightly more uh, a big portion of my day was managing pediatrics. I would start the day doing rounds uh, and seeing every single patient and ordering their medications and ordering lab work and analyzing and running a clinic. And um, that was really, really busy. But it was one of the best things I did. Honestly, I think I would have been um, I would have been happy to do just anesthesia, but boy, I really discovered a new level of satisfaction, I think, wow. in, in patient care with managing kids too. But it was heartbreaking because the you know malaria is endemic there, and there are many diseases that are problematic in Chad, but you know a mosquito-borne disease that everybody is going to get exposed to while they're there. Uh, we saw a lot of death from many things, and malaria being one, where we would have children with a hemoglobin of two every day. And a hemoglobin of one, once or twice a week. Not wow. uncommon. So it was pretty severe to see that and quite a learning curve. And if and your, and your resources for managing that are, were, were sparse, and that's not something that you can really yeah. manage effectively. Um, I mean, there were medications there, but they were still using some really outdated um, techniques for, for treating malaria. And it really many times depended on the severity of the child. 
when you catch malaria early, it's completely treatable and you can recover from it. Um, sometimes because of it's difficult to get to the hospital in the rainy season, you know, it, things are flooded over, they wait, they have no money. So they show up after the child's been sick for three days and already convulsing with cerebral malaria. The recovery chances start getting more and more slim for that. So yeah, it, my personal preparation for managing that was not what I what it would have been had I known that would be my role also. But I did. I read an awful lot. You know, six or eight months to get up to speed. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about um, the support services for the operating room. There was a, there was a pretty small core of people. I mean, there was a a Western trained an American OBGYN, and her husband. Uh, as an ER physician. So he spent most of his time in the ER and he was also the hospital administrator. So he was busy with a lot of things. And they were so busy and overwhelmed with the volume that as eventually the OBGYN phoned her father, who is also a physician. He flew out and became a full-time physician there also. And that was before I arrived. Um, but he was essentially a general surgeon and he did everything and did it, did it pretty well. Um, but he also was training his, his daughter, the OBGYN, to to be sort of an everything surgeon, general surgeon also. She was very capable with laparotomies and, and a little bit of ortho, a little bit of everything. I mean, she was she was pretty capable. So between them doing pretty good, I think, competent, safe surgery, uh, my job was a little bit easier that I didn't necessarily have to worry about the quality of the surgery right. across the drapes. So I got to focus mostly on the anesthesia side and we developed – nurses who were quality that were already at the hospital and they did have nursing although their level of training was not always the same as you would certainly expect in the United States but most of them were very willing and some were more able than others but we would identify people who we thought could be capable and we'd bring them in and try them out and see if they were a good fit and try to train them you know and add a little bit more and a little bit more of their responsibility to teach spinal anesthesia or ketamine based anesthesia or so you're teaching the nurses in the hospital because that was one of your roles it's not just to go Provide anesthesia, right. but also to train people who were native to that area. Yeah, that's what, that's life. that's absolutely what we wanted. I I didn't want to be the guy, and and even though I did, you know, most of the sick stuff, and I was the one who did anesthesia in the night, and there was a lot of night work. But I wanted people that when I left, that it would continue, and you know, they were far from from perfect, and part of that's my own fault from you know maybe not training them as well as I could have, but we didn't have the exact timeline figured figured out, but but they did a really good job with what they had available. And uh, and in my time there, you know, I worked with, you know, four or five different guys. One of them moved on to another city, um, which was great. We were able to plant him into another hospital. And then I essentially left behind two really good, um, you know, CRNAs. They weren't really CRNAs. I'm using that sort of metaphorically, but, you know, they were, they were nurses who were learning anesthesia and they were... Yeah fairly competent, not perfect, but fairly competent with doing what they needed to do with the equipment that was available. Yeah. And in, in the perfect world, I would train those guys and they would be training the next people coming in. Right. And these were the folks that were providing anesthesia for these surgeries before you... One of, well, there, was, who was, who there, was were, there were two guys that were doing the anesthesia most of the time. And one of them, his name's Ndilbe, and he was a great guy. And he was the jack of all trades. He could He could be like a scrub tech... He could be the anesthetist. He would be central sterile supply, making the surgery kits. You know, he there was just about nothing this guy couldn't do. And his training was a nurse, but he was very, very well-rounded for his environment. He could do so much. 
So I, he ended up, I left him behind, you know, that's his home. Uh, and so he was a great resource. And then I trained several others and one left and, and went to the Capitol to work with Doctors Without Borders, which was a great financial opportunity for him. Uh, one of the other guys that I trained to do anesthesia, he actually died after I left. Oh, wow. Um, and then so that left behind uh, two other guys. So, you know, there was there was something uh, for perpetuity, I guess, for people to, to continue to train. And one of the techniques I used was because, by the way, this was all done in French. So I studied French, but there's nothing like discovering how bad your language skills are, like trying to teach somebody medical things, medical procedures, things that I'd never really thought about studying. So I studied pretty good. I mean, we were pretty capable after a year. And then before by leaving, I felt really confident. But there were so many phrases that I didn't quite have. So I would teach like one guy how to do certain things. And then I would have him teach the next guy that we brought in that we were trying out. I would listen to the phrases that they would use. And so I would oh, adopt. Interesting. Yeah. So they were kind of teaching me to be the teacher. I didn't tell them that. But <laughs> <laughs> it worked out pretty well, though. That's fascinating. Yeah. What were some of the other things that you didn't expect in terms of the challenges of lack of resources, the cases that you saw, the things that you had to that stretched you and your family. Yeah. Well, just to stay on that, I guess, firstly, the, the medical track is I'm just so wired as a Westerner that you expect organization and you expect there to be certain processes in place that, that will always exist. But, you know, when there is a medication that you always, always, always use and you always have to have and you find out that it's not available on you know, there were more than a few times where I went a little bit crazy, honestly yelling at people, being like, you know, we need this and we should have a three-month supply of it. And they might say, well, it wasn't available at the central, you know, the district pharmacy. We just couldn't get it. And I said, well, you know, that's right now. But if we had had a big supply of it, we would have had it. Even when they run out for a few weeks, we'd have a month's and month's supply. And they weren't always the most forward-thinking. And that was amplified in so many departments in so many different ways where we couldn't maybe we didn't have the reagents to test test for hiv that meant we had no blood bank that means the children who had a hemoglobin of one wow. or two couldn't get a transfusion and could die so you, things like you that had, were, you had blood at times yeah we had a, essentially a, a walking blood bank anybody that came into my department i requested their family to give a unit of blood even if it was a hernia operation and we would tell them this isn't necessarily for your husband or your wife, but we're going to keep it. If your husband needs it, he'll get the blood. If not, we're going to give it to the next. So that was, you know, we gave away some pretty cheap surgery. It wasn't completely free, although we did buy a lot of surgery for our patients or we had donors that would help cover surgery costs. But one of the costs was give us some blood. And uh, so we would keep blood in the refrigerator because we had massive hemorrhages from obstetrics and we had a lot of malaria to treat. And one of the side products, I guess, of the pathophysiology of malaria is you end up hemolyzing your red blood cells. So um, we needed a lot of blood. So that was that was the cost of surgery for that. So when you would run out of the, you know, the materials to test for hepatitis or HIV and you had no blood bank, I was pretty mad when those things would, would, right. would occur. So I admit to yelling, and I'm not really much of a screamer, I have to say, but I was not as cool as I would have liked to have been at times because I right. was hot and I was uncomfortable. I was out of my league at times. That's how it felt. Um, so when things that should have been controllable were not in control, I would lose my cool a bit. Yeah. I think that's something that really struck me about your time in Africa is that you go there with good intentions to, to train people on how to do anesthesia, to help improve the health of the people. 
and then not being able to do that because of a lack of resources. Mm-hmm. Sounds completely frustrating at times. It, it definitely was. You know, when you run out of IV quinine and that was the primary treatment that they had because that was just it's such a resource-limited country, um, you know, the things that you should have, you just should have. And it was it was a learning curve for a lot of a long time. And it was even bigger than that. We had, you know, we ended up getting involved in areas we just didn't have any expertise. I mean, my wife took over the malnutrition program and she's a nurse, but she wasn't trained in America how to manage malnutrition in Central Africa. And, and that was a big stressor, trying to do the right things and reach out to other organizations and try to find out what's available to us or the local school even. I mean, we got involved with the local school and we're trying to get children into school. It's just not a priority. And, you know, trying to figure out what's culturally the right way to do that without disrupting, you know, the civilization of, of that of that particular country. But is there a reason kids can't be in school? And sometimes there might be, but we started raising funds and got scholarship money for kids to be in school or scholarship money to pay for their uniforms or their books or whatever. Or, hey, um, how about you pay for your son and I'll pay for your daughter. Would that be acceptable? Or would you let me pay for your daughter if I also pay for your son to go to school? Girls' job is different than in America. You know, they are learning to run the household, and so education was a lower tier uh, priority there. And we were trying to find a culturally appropriate way to get girls into school. Wow. Yeah, so there were many many areas we were stretched in and completely not prepared for. Because you're not anticipating... Dude, any of that kind of Not work. at all. And there's a great book I read. Um, I'd encourage you to look at it. It's called When Helping Hurts. So, for example, a lot of Americans have ideas about how to help when there's a disaster or there's a civil war. And one thing we like to do is give money. And money is a great thing. But, for example, I've heard of people sending a bunch of shoes to Haiti. And that sounds like a great thing. You know, you box up a bunch of shoes. Now these kids aren't going to be barefooted. But, you know, there's a local shoe seller at the market. In Haiti, yeah. so you've given up, you flooded the market with free shoes, and now this guy can't make a living anymore. You know, you can exa- sort of magnify that in many, many different ways. Where we we come in with an idea and we throw money at it, perhaps, and and it's a, it's a short term fix. But then you maybe are creating a, a culture where rather than them trying to find a way around a problem, they look to a certain outside source. Like, well, we know we can get money if we just go to this person. We worked hard, not always. Not always perfectly, but we worked hard as to not be that, that people would always come to us for money. Although, I, as I even say those sentences, I think we failed in some ways because people knew that we would try to find a way to help them financially. Right. I would maybe do that a little bit differently, although we did, I feel like we touched you know, a number of people in ways that, that I, I can't figure out how I would have done it other than through financial assistance. Right. We lost a lot of money. Uh, serving in Chad, and I don't mean just giving up an income, but we, you know, there's so many things that we invested in people, and I don't care about the money, I should add, but, you know, we, we spent a lot of money to, to try to help people in, in, in a lot of ways, and, and a lot of good friends and people donated money to help us do that through yeah. our nonprofit. So let's talk about some of the logistics around around the finances a little bit. Sure. So you, you quit your job here, you sell all your stuff, you bought a lot of supplies to go with you, mm-hmm. you were aligned with Adventist Health International. For other people who are thinking about doing something like this, how does the money work? I mean, you were, were you paid? Were you supported? Did you have to did you have to raise your own funding? Um, how did you take care of yourself, your family? Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I didn't go there expecting that we would have any any outside 
funding at all. Uh, I figured we were selling our things and we were just kind of kind of bite the bullet for humanity and, and, and do that for a while. And it, it sounds a little bit crazy, but, you know, I, I've worked a lot of years and I still have a lot of working years in front of me. And I thought it's just a, a period of time where I won't make money and that's okay. As it turned out, I did get a stipend from, from AHI. And that was the organization that was supporting this hospital and not affiliated with them other than I was a, a volunteer um, but they did end up offering me a stipend, and it was a st- and housing. So I had a free house, and I don't want to overplay how it was a fairly modest house. But it, you know, it was a place for us to stay, and we had you know clean water and we had electricity. Although we didn't use the lighting very much at night because there were so many bugs, it was like a magnet for mosquitoes and insects of all right. kinds. Anyway, that aside, but they gave us enough money to live on that we could buy food, and uh, and that was pretty good. What really, um, the reason it wasn't enough money is because we were involved in so many other facets of life there and fundraising for, for medications for pediatrics or buying, paying for surgery for certain people who are really poor or the school uniforms and tuition and the malnutrition program. And we were trying to save money even for a vehicle. We ended up buying a motorcycle for our family of four instead of the vehicle. Um, so logistically... You know, we, we just we ended up losing a little bit of money along the way. But right. what, what I did have was Facebook. And I can say Facebook was an easy way because our Internet was horrible. We didn't have, you know, Wi-Fi or high-speed Internet, but we did have cellular access. And even though it was really, really slow, it was still a, a cord to reach out to the outside world. So I would just, you know, I wrote a lot while I was there, and I published some of what it was just through Facebook and through our blog, um, just telling people what life was like there. But people were inspired by what we were doing, and and so eventually I, I did develop a nonprofit so that people could people like a you know a tax break. So I was more than happy to try to work that out so people would help us with our work, and they'd get something out of it besides just satisfaction. So they got a tax break, but um, people were very generous, and and I couldn't have done it without a lot of outside help. And we didn't make tons of money, not even close. But we did. We would say, hey, we'd like to raise three thousand dollars for. For this project or whatever, or for my anesthesia machine, or or for a um, McGrath C-Mac, like a little video laryngoscope, because I was the only intubator, you know, for a thousand kilometers. It was nice to have a backup plan. So people did give money and they gave generously, and that that kind of kept us afloat. We still spent out of pocket for our year and a half there, but we would have been pretty deep, you know, in spending. We blew our entire like annual budget in probably four or five months, wow. just to give you an example. Yeah. Wow. What were some of the? Tell me about your family, how how they got along, and you took, what, what were the ages of your daughters when you went? And I mean, everyone's learning French. Everyone's living in a buggy, hot African <laughs> desert. So yeah. tell me about that, that was, was that was definitely one of the great adventures. I have to say. So I went. I think my daughters were eleven and nine when we moved there, and they had also studied French to a degree, not to the same degree that my wife and I did. But they'd been studying French, and one of the limiters to that is in the village not everybody knows the formal language not everybody knows the official language which is French or Arabic so they'd speak non-jure which is a local uh, local language so my daughters they learned to adapt and I should add this that they had been part of like classical scholars and different even like homeschool and things at home but we moved to Chad and we decided to put them in the local school so that was we really stretched them and I have to give them a lot of credit for being flexible and and there was crying (laughs) Um, you know, there was a transition period of, of a number of weeks when school actually started that I, I'm sure the words you know, were probably muttered that they hate it or they want to 
you know, go home or something right. like that. But we put him in the local school and that we thought that was the best way. They would actually make friends and not be isolated just living on the hospital compound. And they learn culture and they learn language. And it made their French a lot better. I mean, French was the official language in school. But a lot of their friends would just chatter in their in their local, you know, languages and dialects in between classes and things like that. So it was it was quite a experience for them. But they had a lot more freedom, I tell you, in Chad to wander in the village and do whatever they wanted. Compared to in the U.S., we wouldn't just say, "Okay, eleven year old, see you later." Yeah. But uh, but we were able to do that after being there a period of time and realizing that these people were were really open armed appreciative that we were there and they were just they were friendly good people and there was there was not a danger easily palpable there i mean it turns out we felt pretty safe yeah i mean there was an issue with boko haram which was really active in nigeria and in the northern part of of chad or in the capital it wasn't where we were but we knew that was sort of a possibility i mean chad is a it's a mixed country just like the united states where there are multiple denominations of different religions and you know um, if you just listen to the news reports, we should be enemies. It turns out in Chad, I mean, we got along great with everybody and everybody got along great with us. We were invited to meals with them. We, it was very congenial and collegial and we had, we made great friends of many, many different religious backgrounds that you would think if you just read the newspaper, you shouldn't be with those people. They're dangerous. Mm. Um, they were not at all. They were very, very welcoming and, and great people. Yeah. I forgot what the other part of the question was. It was... Um, Just the challenges that your family faced and, yeah. and the adaptation. Well, I go back to my wife. You know, she's a mother, a Western mother, used to being able to provide all the safety nets and the normal things for children. And she had to do a lot of adapting and learning, even just how to cook a meal. You know, we everything was from scratch there, which is a great you know lesson you could learn from your grandparents or maybe mm-hmm. your parents, depending on where you live. But you know, this is a fast food world in America, and there is no fast food where we lived. And the feeds are different. Absolutely. I mean, we went to an open-air market where it was reasonable to reach your hand into a bowl and pick up the flour and smell it. And when we'd bring it home, we would sift out the bugs. Mm. Or if you'd buy whatever wheat, and you'd pick all the rocks out of it. You know, I mean, wow. it, it was very hands-on and very sort of primitive. So we, you know, we would actually buy wheat berries and grind it into flour and then my wife would homemade bread. I mean it was you know it was pretty basic basic stuff there. Lots of beans and rice or rice rice and beans, you know, for variety. We just put one on top of the other to mix things up. Um, so that was pretty tough. And then, you know, the whole sickness factor, we all got malaria. It's it's just a fact of life there and it's completely treatable. I mean you feel lousy and it's like the flu. It's really what it's like. Um, so for us, it wasn't that big a deal. But when your child has a fever and you don't really know the source, you know, that's anxiety provoking. And do we have the right medicines right. or will there be a shortage like snakes? Snakes were there. You know, will we have antivenin at the hospital when my child finally gets bitten by a snake? We saw people bleed to death from snake bite in, in wow. Chad. Not my children, thankfully. But so those those are, you know, some of the things you just don't think about when you raise a child in America. You don't think about but you did think about some of those things. Before you left? We did. We prepared as much as possible. We brought extra medications with us on the off chance they, things wouldn't be available. Um, but there was just a lot of things really kind of out of out of your control, you know. And, you and, know that's, part, and that's part of that faith step. It was. It was. And, and I will say that, you know, things went pretty well. You know, I mean, I think one of my daughters probably had malaria five times in a year and a half. 
I think the other got it three. I think my wife got it once. And I had it three times, I think, How also. long is the bout of malaria? Usually for, just for... several days. I mean, it's not oh, the worst man. thing in the world. But it did turn out that I had Dr. Collins, the director of the anesthesia program here at WCU. He came and visited me with some students when I had malaria my worst. Worked out great. It was perfect timing because <laughs> I was able to lay in bed after them being there for a day. So he kind of got the lay of the land. And he was able to run the anesthesia department. So I mean, it keep, was, it, keep surgery going. It was and, good timing. And he even came over and started an IV on me while oh, I was man. laying in bed. So that, that worked out great. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And we all recovered and it was fine. I mean, it's miserable while it's happening to you, but it's just a fact of life. And, and that's a snap, you know, just a snapshot in time for us. Those people are, there are people all over the world that live with that. You know, there's, they claim 500,000 deaths a year from malaria. Hmm. So, you know, we had flu-like symptoms for a few days. It's not the end of the world. I feel like there, in talking with you off the podcast, there were a lot of adjustments in perspective in, in that. I remember a story you told perhaps not too long after you got there about children reaching through the fence with oh, sticks yeah. to dig. We had a compost, compost pile. pile. The, sort of, there were several families on this compound, and they would dump their vegetable scraps into this pile, our compost pile. And you know, I think it was maybe there was a lot of pineapple or something that time of year. And... Um, but scraps would go in, some imperfect fruits, you know, how Westerners can be a little bit finicky about their fruit. And uh, they, there were children that were reaching through this fence with a stick that was maybe six feet long, and they were trying to drag the scraps close enough so they could pull them out of the compost pile and eat them. And that was, that was one of a couple of sort of gut punches and reality checks for us that, you know, this is, this is real. Like, we're hungry, but they're starving. Mm-hmm. You know, there was another man who, there was a thing called the baby milk program, and they would, if, if women died during childbirth, but the father was left behind, or there were a few other examples, but that, that was a pretty typical scenario where there would be no woman to breastfeed a child, so they could actually buy formula, which was really expensive in Chad. So what they would do is the hospital had a program where they would pay for the infant formula, and in exchange, somebody in the, in, the, in the family would come and work at the hospital compound and rake leaves or do something insignificant. Well, there was a time where my wife and daughters had come back from the market. They bought a bunch of beans, dried beans. They were sitting on the front steps, picking out rocks and picking out the really wormy beans and throwing them on the ground. Well, there was a man raking the hospital compound. Yeah. And he walked over and he asked my wife, hey, can I have those beans that you're throwing on the ground? The ones that were filled with worms, the ones that were rotten, the bad beans... I mean, this guy's family is starving just around the corner, and we're throwing out the bad beans right in front of him. Wow. It was, um, it was kind of a reality check that this was just a different world that we were living in. Wow. Yeah. Of course, my wife gave him all of the rotten beans on the ground and, like, all of the beans they had purchased. You know, you just want to help when you feel like, you know, you're rich. We may not have been rich. I mean, I gave up a great career in America to go live pretty poorly in Chad, but I still had way more than most of the population that we were serving. So, you know, to give away a bag of beans and rice, we were glad to do it. Hey folks, I'm going to end this first episode here. Be sure to check out the next episode where Mason shares advice for anesthesia providers who want to get involved and do this kind of work. All right, I'll catch you there. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.